Finish it with me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, if you've been part of Western Hills for a while, you know this is one of my pet peeves, and I've preached on this before. Does anybody actually believe that statement? See, we know that words can be devastating. And we have a problem in our world today, and it begins with our words. Now, before you think that I'm about to be too dramatic, let me show you how Jesus ends this statement. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words are murder. That's what Jesus chooses to describe how we go about using our words. Now, if you don't believe me, I'm going to get into it in just a second, and I'll show you. But we've got to understand that our words can have a devastating consequence, right? That, that the way that we talk to one another really, really matters. And is anybody right now is anybody right now in our country experiencing just an encouragement overload? Is anybody going, it's too much encouragement, it's too much good news, I need something negative to come along, right? You know, <clears throat> there have actually been attempts at running entire news channels based off of only good news, and they fail every time. Because there's something about us that we're drawn to the negative. We're drawn to that which, which drags us down. And then we have this tendency to spew it out onto others. And guess what? Social media made it go a lot faster, hasn't it? I did some research this week in preparing for it. And you're gonna, we're going to talk about anger today and negativity. And one of the things that I came across of is they've done studies and they started where they would track, uh, get a certain group of people, and they would have them tweet out or post or, or send out on social media certain kinds of posts. And then they would track the response and see how those got shared and how those got shared and the emotions that went with it. And by and large, the negative, angry posts are the ones that would go viral the fastest. And they discovered something they weren't planning on. That there's an emotional hook that goes with it. So not only is it just a words that are being passed along, but there's an emotion that's being carried with it. And they would find that, that people would, one person would be angry and it would spark anger in another person. So we're about to go to a part of this Sermon on the Mount that we've been exploring together as followers of Jesus because we're asking the question, how can God possibly heal our land? And this is one of those passages, this is one of those parts of the sermon where you're going to swear that it wasn't preached 2,000 years ago. That Jesus wrote this for 2020. That he wrote it for election season 2020 that he wrote it for right now, social media 2020. And so you've already heard it once today, but let me go ahead and share. Again, I'm going to dive into these words. 
We're only going to deal with very few passages today, but I think you're going to see some power in them. So I'm going to start in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Matthew. This is where you find the Sermon on the Mount, and we're now getting into a part of the sermon that Jesus is going to tell us, here's what you do. Here's, here's how you live. So he says this, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. And what he's doing, he's quoting. He's quoting their Bible, their beliefs. He's quoting their Sunday school lessons. He says, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this is one of those passages that at first blush, when he comes along, he says, now, you know, you've said, do not murder. This is the one that I really like, because I can go, haven't done that. Whew, dodge that. You know, I'm in the clear. And so just when I think I'm in the clear, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And he's actually quoting the Ten Commandments. And so we would all jump aboard and agree with that. You would find it very rare with the person to say, hey, we need to stay away from murder. That they would disagree with that, that statement. Anybody in whatever argument or dispute you're in, most people would agree with that. But Jesus takes it up another level when he says, but I tell you, and this is what Jesus gets to do. Jesus gets to add to the Scriptures. Okay, Jesus, because He's King, and whether you believe that or not yet, if you'll give Him a hearing, He'll show Himself to be King. And what He does is He takes the Scriptures that they were all very familiar with, and He says, but I'm going to go up another notch. I'm going to lead you into a better way. I'm going to call you to something. And He says... I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. My first thought is, I've got siblings. That's not fair. <laughs> he says, if you're angry with someone, there's a judgment coming. And suddenly, everybody gets quiet. Because this is a whole nother dimension that Jesus is calling us to. This is another way of living. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to a certain kind of life. And he's saying there's a pathway. And what he's about to do is he's about to connect two things. He's about to connect our words all the way to murder. And we would look at it and go, no, no, no. There's no connection there. That's, that's too far apart. You can't. You can't put those in the same category. And so he comes up with this, if you're angry with your brother or sister, and then he says, and you say to them, Raka. Now, we're going to learn something together here, okay? Raka was a term of derision. Okay, this is what you told somebody. As best we can tell, it meant the empty one or empty-headed, okay? Now, it's not just what it means, but it's how you say it. You ever notice there's, there's tone in people's words? It's one of the things that makes text messaging so hard we had to come up with emojis because you could read one text message a dozen different ways and it was always based on not their emotion, but your emotion, right? On how you read it. So, rock is one of those words that if it had an emoji with it, it would have the little angry face emoji with it. And so... You, you really emphasize the second syllable, you know, and you don't just say it. 
you try to conjure up a loogie while you're saying it. So we're going to do this together, okay? So say this if you say, Raka, come on, come on, you Raka, yeah. I know the concern about spittle in the air is not really helping this right now. But it was not just, not just a word of disgust, but it was an action of disgust. And so even in the way you pronounce the word is how you're demeaning the person that you're telling it to. You despise them. And so what Jesus is alluding to is a vicious cycle that we get into. When I'm angry with you, I'm angry because I disagree with you. And once I disagree with you, I get to misspell disrespect, apparently. Sorry. I disrespect you. And then I can dehumanize you. And after I've gone through that process, with through my words, my language, I've put you into a different category. I've lowered who you are. I've dehumanized you. Why would it not make sense to destroy you? Because you're no longer human in my eyes. That's not murder then, is it? This is why Jesus says you've got to be so careful with this. Because when you start on this way, you end up with murder. We think it's just a word. And Jesus says, no, it's a weapon. And it's a weapon that leads somewhere. And he says, you've got to be careful. And then he adds this part to it. He says, whether you say... It's answerable to the court or anyone who says, you fool. And this one used to scare me to death. It says, you fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. And so, once again, I had brothers. And so this was easy for me to say, you fool. You know, they just make me mad. And then I read this verse. I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, I've lost. You know, and then my grandmother taught me not to say this. And my mom taught me not to say this. And so what I would do instead of saying that, I would think it. You know, you know I mean, go inside of my head. Now, let me be clear what God's not calling us to do. He's not saying the thought can ever go through your head. But he is asking, what do you do with it after that? What, what will you do with that? And then he uses this phrase about in the fires of hell. And I want to talk about that. That word there is Gehenna. And let me show you this. Gehenna is the word that he uses for hell. And this has an incredible backstory to it. Because Jesus is using a very powerful, a very powerful um, metaphor that the people that heard the sermon on that first day would have gotten, and we don't understand. Because what we see is we think some afterlife judgment, right? We think there's something going on in the afterlife that after I die, because I said the word fool, that's you know I go to hell. But when Jesus said that, what the people understood in the crowd was they were familiar with Gehenna because it was a place. It was a physical place. And first thing you need to know about, it's a valley that runs along the side of the city of Jerusalem. And I've actually had a chance to stand and look over this valley. It looks very different today than it did then, but you can still see where it's a very sharp valley that goes down right at the edge of Jerusalem. And he's actually referring to that place. The reason he uses that as the metaphor, the word picture, is because in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, Judite kings went out and actually offered their children in sacrifice and burned them up in fire. And so because of that horrendous act, this place became a cursed place. You, you didn't want to go there. It was, it was not just like 
a cemetery. It was like a spooky cemetery. It was a spooky cemetery with some bad history, some, some bad vibes that, that went with it. And so people would avoid it. Well, it's still a place right next to Jerusalem, so when, once it's someplace that nobody wanted to live. And so what they would do is they'd go out to the edge of the, this hill where Jerusalem sat, and they would throw the garbage down there. And then King Herod used it as a place where all of his latrines inside the palace would flow to. And so they used the natural gravity and they'd flow down and became a sewage place. And so then what do you do to treat this? You know, they have modern sewage treatments, so what do you do? You light it on fire. And you try to burn up all that's there, all the garbage, everything, you try to consume it. My grandmother had a burn barrel outside. I always thought that was so cool. You know, what, we didn't, she didn't have garbage service that came by, so we put everything in the burn barrel, and I got to go light it on fire. You know, well, that was cool. This was a whole valley, a whole area that was cursed and just turned over to sewage and turned over to, to anything negative, and it was always smoldering. So, Jesus is saying, it's a dumpster fire. Okay? He's saying, this is a dumpster fire and if you choose to go down this this path where you disrespect someone and then you begin to demean them and then you dehumanize them and you're on the path to destroy them then he says what you're living in then is a dumpster fire of an existence do we need a better word for 2020 do we need a better word to describe what we're seeing play out in our social media on our news networks in our conversations that become so heated where we just end up yelling at each other and shouting at one another. See, see, Jesus is predicting this. When you go down this path, the result is nothing good. The result is a Gehenna. The result is a dumpster fire. Your life becomes this, and Jesus is looking at this. If you want to heal the land, you've got to change. And it begins with the words we use. Why is it so much easier to tear down than it is to build up? Why, why does that become our nature? Have you ever noticed that we don't usually have to train our kids on how to tear somebody else down? They just pick it up. Just because it's in the air. But different is ones that we raise them up. And they build one another up. And then when we see it, it's starkly different, isn't it? Jesus goes on. And he continues the story. He says, therefore, here's how you break this cycle. We've got to pay attention to this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and, come, and then come and offer your gift. Last week, Chris titled his message, Inconceivable. This is one of the places where I want to scream, inconceivable. Because think about what Jesus is asking. Most of the pilgrims on the way to to Jerusalem had about a three-day walk minimum. And they were toting a live animal with them. And what Jesus is asking is, after you've navigated three days on foot through all the weather and all the exposure and made your way into the busy, crazy, hectic world that is the temple... I mean, it was a huge, you know, think of going to the Six Flags on a crowded day. 
and just this team, mass of humanity, and everybody made around. They finally make it to the altar, and at that moment, you realize my brother or my sister has something against me. Jesus' instructions are tie the animal up three days back, go settle that account three days back, come, and then, and then you're ready to worship. Now, does that not change some priorities? Does that not change how we look at one another and what it means to come before God? He's saying you've got to get right with one another. This is how important it is. You get right with one another, and then you can be right with me. I care so much about how you interact with one another that I value that. And it affects your interaction with me. Now, if you're a parent, you get this simple. Because nothing makes me prouder than I watch my kids get along, and nothing frustrates me more than when they don't. It, it, it hurts. But when they love one another, and when they love one another unprompted by mom or dad, That's a day for the memory books. That's a day I don't soon forget. That's what God's calling us to. He says, you want to live different in this land? You live this way. And then what strikes me most about this is, it's not when I remember that I've got something against you. It's but I remember that you've got something against me. And that becomes such a burden to me that I go to make it right. I take the first step in moving in your direction. That's upside down all the way. Just saying, when, when somebody else has something against you, you take the first step and you move their direction. All of our words of anger, of raka and fool and everything else that we want to call somebody and demean somebody, it steps in the opposite direction, is it not? And we draw our lines and we say, I'm not going to move till they move. I, I, I'm not going to give in till they give in. Because I may get taken advantage of then. And Jesus says, that's the risk you're going to have to take. Because Jesus moved our way first. He took the greatest risk of all, and yet while we were still sinners, he laid down his life for us. And he says, you want to be in my kingdom? That's the move that you make. You move towards one another. Can, can, you, can you imagine the difference in our world today if there was a group of people committed to moving toward one another when there was angst between them instead of away? Would, would that shine out in our world? Would that stand in stark contrast? There is a group of people that are called to do that, and Jesus has a word for them. It's called the church. And that is his invitation and his call to what we're supposed to be is to be moving towards one another, even those that have something against us. We don't lay the burden on them. We seek righteousness and right relationships in all. And then he finishes this way. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's 
taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This was always a confusing verse to me. I'm thinking, is he giving just practical tips on how to handle lawsuits? He's doing that. But I first took this away and said, well, I guess we shouldn't bring lawsuits against anybody. Now, I don't think you should, but that's not what this verse is saying. Because I want you to look really carefully at the verse. Because it's not saying that if you've got a lawsuit, don't have the lawsuit. It's saying when you're getting sued. Do you notice what the assumption is? I never saw this before until I started studying it this week. Do you notice what the assumption is? The assumption is, Jesus is telling their followers, when you're guilty of something, because notice it says, if you go all the way to court, guess what happens to you? The judge is going to find in favor of the other. You're going to be thrown in jail. You're going to have to pay, pay the fine. You're going to be, receive all the punishment. There's an assumption there. And so what Jesus is telling his followers is, when you're in the wrong, own it. Own it. Don't try to fight it in the legal system. Don't try to hide behind lawyers. Don't try to protect yourself. You go to them and say, I have wronged you. Let's settle this. And he's saying the outcome in that is just practically going to be better than the other outcome. And again, it's that movement for whether you've got something against me or I've done something against you. Followers of Jesus... We take the first step, and we move towards. Can you imagine what it would be like if our two political parties started to practice this? We would be convinced the apocalypse has come. If they started moving toward each other. Not, not, it doesn't say anything about giving up positions, and it doesn't say anything about not holding values. But right now, we're just yelling at each other. And we're demeaning the other side. We're not even listening anymore. It's all about volume. Not about values. And Jesus says, you want to be in my kingdom? I'm going to invite you into a different way where you come in and you own your stuff. And you own your behavior. You notice that's what we're doing right now? We keep blaming whoever we're against for our behavior. I wouldn't be this way if they weren't that way. Oh, this goes on in marriages all the time. This isn't just a political party deal. This is a in-your-home kind of thing. I wouldn't be doing this if he or she wasn't doing that. It's her fault. It's his fault. What Jesus is doing, and he's about to do through the rest of this sermon, is he's going to talk about that second moment. That not, not the first moment where somebody does something and you need to have an immediate flash of anger or an immediate reaction. That's not what he's describing there. Because he's going to go on and talk about what do you do with lust when you suddenly see the pretty woman or the good-looking guy. What do you do? And so he's got all these different moments he's setting up, but he's not talking about that very first moment. He's talking just that immediate reaction. He is talking about what will you do with that second moment. That once you're, oh, I just reacted. Now you've got a choice to make. What will I do with that second moment? Will I begin the cycle where I demean and disrespect and dehumanize and which ends in murder and destruction? 
Or will I allow that second moment to come under the lordship of Jesus as the one that I call king and say, now I give that to you. And instead of following the path downward, I move in their direction. Because I'm seeking righteousness. So I'm going to give you some takeaways. And the first one, I'm about to light up some emails, I know. You can reach me at chris at... um, Here's the first one. Here's the takeaway. As followers of Jesus, we do not have freedom of speech. As followers of Jesus, we have not been granted freedom of speech where I get to say whatever I want because I thought of it. Now, in America, we have freedom of speech. But as I understand, what I've done is I've laid down my life to a different king. And my citizenship is transferred. I may live here and I get my mail here, but my citizenship is in a different kingdom and I don't have freedom of speech, but what I do have is I have freedom to bless. And freedom to bless means that when I have that initial reaction, I get a choice. And I can either lash back at you, I can either come up with my great name, or I can get my trash talk game on, and aren't we good at that? I get my trash talk on, and I can come back with you, and I can get a zinger in there. And then I can go brag to the people and say, hey, I got a zinger in on them. Here's what I said. Oh, that was good. And we can put a hashtag with it and we can get it going. We'll get it viral. Or in that moment, I use my freedom to bless. And I change the equation. And I don't play the game. And I build up. And I encourage. And I speak blessings. And I speak love. I'm I'm not giving up my values but I am moving in the direction of a right relationship with someone and you know what the beautiful thing is they can't do a thing about it they they can't change that You, you can't prevent me from praying for you and blessing you There's not a law that can be written. There's not a post that can be posted. There's not a force that can come against that. If I want to drop a prayer bomb in the middle of your life, I get to do that. And you can't stop me. And that's what Jesus is biased to. Because here's the second thing that you need to know. In the kingdom of Jesus, relationship is more important than even worship. That's what he's saying. It is so important that we have right relationships, that we be in this relationship with one another, that even at the moment of worship when you're at the altar and you're about to perform this most intimate act of worship before God, if you've got something you need to make right, you go take care of that first. This, if we were to learn to practice this, it would change the world. Because we would no longer worry about or argue over right worship styles and music preferences and buildings and everything else that a lot of times we get caught up of and I get caught up in myself. But we'd focus on these right relationships. Can, can, can you imagine? Now, you may not want to practice this yourself, but can you imagine if everybody in your world did? You'd want to live in that world, wouldn't you? You want to change your marriage? Put this into practice. You want to change the place where you work? 
put this into practice. Students, you want to change your school? Start living this out. It will change everyone around you, and it will begin to heal our land. Because no longer will we play the game of tearing down. No longer will we play the game of demeaning one another, of dehumanizing one another. And once again, it makes so much sense that if I demean, I dehumanize you. Murder is just the natural next step, and there's nothing to keep me from it. That's why Jesus says, your words, they're murder. You've got to be careful with them. I'll end with this. It's the story of Jenny. Jenny was a student at school at, at West Jordan High. And she was a smart and lovely young lady, except Jenny had some challenges before. Jenny was in a wheelchair. She was blind in both eyes. And she had some struggles that made it difficult to, to speak and communicate clearly. And so she relied on a computer device that she could type into and it would voice her words for her. Well, one night, other students, the basketball team and the cheerleaders, were all gathered at the basketball coach's house. I mean, the, the captain of the team, his name was Chad, at his house for a dinner for the big game the next night. And they go upstairs to hang out like students will do, and they're hanging out, and the dad, Chad's dad, overhears their conversation, and he hears them talking about Jenny. And he didn't personally know Jenny, but he hears language and the way they described her, and he's not really proud of his son at that moment because the whole team and the cheerleaders are all engaged and basically running Jenny down. And, and what a nuisance she is at school and, and how awkward it is and they have to make a way around her wheelchair and all this stuff. And so the dad takes on himself and he walks in, he knocks on the door, and he steps in and he says, I can hear what you're talking about. And you know that they all froze. Someone went, oh, Chad, <laughs> you're in trouble. And he says, that's not how we treat people. He says, but I'm not disappointed in you because this isn't your fault. I'm disappointed in your captain. He's talking about his own son. And he said, but I'm not really disappointed in him. I'm disappointed in me because apparently I didn't raise him to be different. And so he leaves that message with them there, and of course they're all stunned, and I'm sure the rest of the party was just a bummer after that. <laughs> the next day, Dad shows up at the school. And all the basketball players, they ate at one table. And so he walks over to the table, looks at his son, this team captain, and says, time to lead. He says, come with me. So his son stands up. He gets the basketball team to go with him and the cheerleaders to go with him, and they go over to the table where Jenny sits, and Jenny sits by herself lunch after lunch after lunch after lunch. And he gently taps Jenny on the shoulder to let him know that they're there. And he tells them, I've got the basketball team and the cheerleaders here, and Jenny becomes incredibly excited because nobody eats with Jenny. She's not afraid. She's just overcome with excitement. And he begins to ask her questions. He says, Jenny... Who's your best friend? And through the device and struggle, Jenny says, my mom. My mom, Stacy's my best friend. Next question. Jenny, what's your dad do? 
And through the device, once again, the struggle, I don't know who my dad is. Third question. How long have you been in a wheelchair? She said, all my life. Now imagine how that landed on the ears of these athletic boys that spent all day long running up and down a basketball court. Fourth question. What do you love to do the most, Jenny? She said, I love to hear the cheers at the basketball game. That took 30 minutes for them to have that conversation because it went so slow, but every kid was changed by it. Let me tell you how the article ends. Over the next week, the talk in the school rightfully centered on Jenny, who she was as a person and how everyone treated her. Jenny was elected captain of the cheerleading squad. She was outfitted with a skirt, joined the rest of the girls courtside, and learned to twirl circles in her wheelchair. As a captain, it was Jenny's job to call each, of the, each and every one of the cheers the girls performed. Her story made local news, which was quickly picked up in syndication and reprinted newspapers across the country. Some people that usually didn't come to the basketball games were showing up, but to watch the game. Not to watch the game, but to watch Jenny instead. I share that story because of this. Yeah, it shows the power of our words. It shows the power of humanizing somebody instead of dehumanizing them. But I'll show this. We have a Heavenly Father that showed up and said, that's not how you treat people. And he enters into the situation, and that changed the situation. In fact, he was willing to take all of our abuse, all of our words, all of our slander, all of our sin, all of our burdens, all of our brokenness onto himself. He moved our direction. He stepped up in the middle of this mess, in the middle of this dumpster fire that we've made out of it. And when people got that vision around Jenny, everybody began to pay attention, right? That's the invitation you and I have. That if we'll let God lead this, if we'll let Jesus be king, it begins with our words, the world can't help but to notice. Let's pray for us. Father, I ask that you heal our land. I ask that you bring peace and unity where there's division. And Father, there's so much violence going on. I ask that you would bring it to an end. But Father, I ask you to help each one of us recognize that it begins with us. We've got to change our language. Not, Not so that you'll love us, not to earn your affection, but because that's what Jesus' people do. That's how we live. And that's what Jesus did for us. And so Father, in the name of the one that has shown us the way, that took all the venom that I could spew onto himself in his name, by his forgiveness, and as our king, we pray. Amen.